For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, find out what one local community wants to say with the podcast Autism Talks. Celebrate the legendary history of the Rialto Theater as seen through the lens of one of its most ardent admirers. And share in the stories and wisdom of Toe Renee Wolf with songs from her latest album. Those are all next on Arizona Spotlight. What happens after you or someone you love receives an autism diagnosis? The transition can be confusing and overwhelming, but the nonprofit Autism Society of Southern Arizona has been there to help. This year, they're launching a podcast called Autism Talks to expand their outreach and help build bridges across the neurological spectrum. Here to tell us more is the program's debut host, Bree Seward, the executive director of the Autism Society of Southern Arizona and community partner and self-advocate Eric Stark, the marketing coordinator for Banner University Health Plans. The mission statement for Autism Talks is conversations with community providers and self-advocates, and it also includes fun activities that families can do at home. So we're reaching people at home where they're at with information and resources. I think that the mission is also to help people more effectively navigate the system and to learn about resources that they may not know even exist. Sometimes it's less about a lack of resources and more about a lack of knowledge of those existing resources. How did Banner come to be a part of this, Eric? How is it that you are teaming up with the Autism Society? We've been a partner for the Autism Society of Southern Arizona for a while. But last year, we became a sustainable sponsor. I've uh, been invited to join the board Now, just for folks' knowledge, in addition to working for Banner, I am also a person with lived experience. I do have a diagnosis on the autism spectrum. So it was just felt that I was a really good fit to both represent Banner University Health Plans, BUHP, and also uh, the wider community. Lived experience should be a huge part of this project. Now, Bree, we've talked before on the radio, so I know a little bit about your lived experience, but share briefly with the audience how it is that you came to be in this position today. When I became a mother, um, my son was diagnosed with autism when he was three and a half years old. So that was my first experience as a parent raising a young boy with autism. So that's my lived experience with autism. Well, Eric, you and I have never met, but if we were going to sit down for a cup of coffee... What would be most important to you to let me know about who you are? Honestly, my life changed when I found out that all the things I'd always considered weaknesses could actually be strengths. So I get paid, in a sense, to talk about my own lived experience, coping with, uh, you know, a diagnosis on the autism spectrum. Now, I don't always wear it on my sleeve in that that's the first thing I introduce to people, but it is an important part of who I am. Mental health and challenges like autism are part of the human condition. And I think that when we treat them as these special, unique, but also like almost forbidden topics, we're not doing anyone justice. I think stigma is what holds people back from being the best people they can be, having a life of meaning and purpose. I often do talk about it, but I always put it into context. Not the first thing I automatically introduce 
But at the same time, I'm not shy about talking about it. Well, then the same kind of question to Bree. Um, how has talking about your son's condition um, changed over the years in terms of your comfort level or what you think it's most important for people to know when they first meet you? You know, it, the pain that people experience in their lives can become your platform and your tests can become your testimony later on. And that is what this diagnosis has given me. It's all my previous working experience that was separate from nonprofit is now plays a foundation in the work that I do now for others with a diagnosis. So it became my purpose um, and it connects me with others in a different way so that I can understand what they're going through. And yes, you know, I can say to a mom, I understand, you know, what you're feeling right now. And that connects people. And it also, in my experience, has released tears from people. Because they they got to remove that wall that they had up when they first called or talked to me, and they can let it go. So it creates connection, and it makes me very vulnerable because I have to talk about that a lot. But it makes me pave the way to help somebody else. And for that, that's why I do it. A point that you very strongly make in the debut episode of Autism Talks is how important it is not to discuss your children's situation in front of others, particularly perhaps their bad behaviors. You know, all of us can think back to a time in our childhood when we remember being aware that we were being talked about in the third person. So could you each speak to that point? You know, our kids, believe it or not, we think they may not be listening or involved in, you know, iPad or something like that, but they hear us. They feel us. I think they feel our emotions when we're stressed, when we've hit the wall and we don't know what to do next. I think, I think they sense all that, especially in our kids. And so it is very important to just constantly respect them in that way where you don't communicate you know, openly with your spouse or significant other or grandma, grandpa in the room, the negatives about the behaviors or how hard the day was. Even if there's children that are nonverbal, they can feel it and they can sense it. So I think we just have to be reminded of these things, um, that they, they can feel the emotions and what we say, and it can have a lasting effect. So my diagnosis came a little, at least in, for autism, came later in life. But I think my presence and in, in participation in this podcast is important because it is actually presenting the other side of the story. And I think it's really important for loved ones. Sometimes you're too close to the situation. So, and you may feel awkward actually having this conversation with your own child or loved one, but just understanding the words we use and the tones we use and how we communicate about what's going on shapes not just how they think, but even how we think about ourselves. I have done resource fairs where I'm addressing the um, adult child and the parent kept interrupting and talking to me and answering for the child. Now, if the child, adult or otherwise, is more comfortable with that, maybe it might be appropriate, but I want to hear what the child has to say, or the person, I should say, because it doesn't really matter about age. And here's the thing. I don't think the message was that we should never talk about these things or that they should be completely private. It's just that we want to talk about them by including our loved ones Mm -hmm. instead of just talking about them, like you said, as a spectator or a third person. Um, It's real easy to focus on 
what people can't do. We don't always focus on what they can do. And the message I have for family members is that you might be very surprised how much more your loved ones can do with the right support and the right encouragement. I spoke with Bree Seward, Executive Director of the Nonprofit Autism Society of Southern Arizona, and Eric Stark, Marketing Coordinator for Banner University Health Plans. They represent the new podcast, Autism Talks. The debut episode is available now. You can find a link on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. The year 2020 marked the 100th anniversary of the Rialto Theater in downtown Tucson. The building served many purposes over those years, but since 1997, the Rialto has been a showcase for musical performances of all stripes, including many that would qualify to be called legendary. The theater's crew plan on bringing music back to the Rialto later this summer. But in the meantime, they're showcasing a visual history of many of the theater's legendary performances as framed by a dedicated photographer with passionate eyes and ears, known as C. Elliott. This is the Rialto Theater in Tucson, Arizona, and this is the photo gallery project. My name is Elliot. I just go by Elliot. What we are looking at is a theater empty of seats, and we have six display boards set up inside of the theater, and then we also have a long board set up across the stage. All of the photos were taken at concerts here at the Rialto Theater. Majority of the photos are mine, and there are also photos from Mark Martinez, as well as some posters that Ryan Trait has designed for the Rialto Theater for past shows. I'm Kelly Barnhill. I am a board member here at the Rialto Theater, and I also help to organize events like our annual fundraiser and this in lieu of COVID. We just thought we would put together an exhibit and remind people that live music still exists and will be back at some point and that the theater is still up and running. My name is Jeff Ratcliffe, a longtime patron of the Rialto Theater. Elliot is uh, always at the Rialto and you can always find her in a crowd because of her headphones and her ladder and her enormous camera weaving through the crowd trying to uh, find the best place for these outstanding images that are here at the theater on display. She's just kind of an institution. She's been amazing as a board member, amazing as a donor, and I don't know where we would be without her. I had always gone to concerts with my parents. My dad was a big band fanatic, and so we would go see Stan Cutton or Buddy Rich. As a teenager, I had a Kodak Instamatic camera with the four flash cube that sat on top, and the first concert I photographed was Laura Nero in 1971. Two weeks later, I went and saw James Taylor with a then unknown Carol King. 1978, I went and shot the Rolling Stones. Just walked right in with my, I had, by then I had a Canon AE-1 with a telephoto lens and just walked right in and got up close to the stage and took photos. But yeah, I think it's part of having, a, not only enjoying the music, but yes, to have something to do while I'm there other than just sitting and watching the show. It's very, very hard to me, for me to go to a concert and not be taking photos. Through my past, I was, I was working for the county attorney for almost 15 years, and that was eight to five, and I wasn't going to a lot of shows. After that, I worked in the tattoo studio industry for almost 10 years, and of course, our nights and weekends are always busy. 
and I really wanted to get back into live music, so I was coming to shows. Mark Martinez was the house photographer here at the time, and as he says, I was kind of a pest, and Mark Martinez in 2009 was moved up to house manager, and I just slid right in behind him. We have about 200 plus shows here a year. So I photograph almost all of those. And then I also, you know, at the Fox Theater, Rialto Theater, we run 191 Tool. I figure I'm out about 200, just under 300 nights a year. At first I was like, oh, unexpected night off. The shows were the show was canceled. And then another night off. And then after about a week, I was like, okay, enough, enough already with the nights off. So what I did is there was a backlog of photos that I have never had time to process. And so I started digging, going, working backwards over the years, all the way up till 2007 and reworking photos or processing them for the first time. At the inception of this, Elliot just handed over her folder of 5,000 photos and said, pick what you want. Jeff has a background in photography, and so he was able to go through and curate, narrow it down for us, and the rest of those of us on the committee kind of narrowed it down to what you're seeing exhibited here. I've been living in Tucson since 1998 and have been coming to the Rialto since it reopened, and it was definitely a trip down memory lane. There were so many shows that I had been to and recognized and was very excited to be reminded of. And I think that's the whole spirit of this exhibit, is to bring people in and remind them of those shows and hopefully get them excited for future shows. One of my favorite photos is the one of Sharon Jones. It was 2014 and she's on stage and she's almost kneeling and she's got the band behind her and she's pretty much the only one lit on the stage. Gogol Bordello is a very high energy gypsy punk band. And so I, I adore shooting them. Devo, of course, I mean, Devo, classic. Childish Gambino, he was just starting off his career. I love it. I, I've, one of my favorite feelings is to be in the photo pit or on the corner of the stage when I'm allowed and look back into the audience and see, you know, 2,500 faces staring back. It's the energy of the crowd that really gets me, you know, that it's just, no matter who we are, from where we come from, our political views, we're all there for one thing, because we all enjoy this band, or this artist, or performance. And, and it's a very unifying thing. Andrew Brown produced that profile of C. Elliott. Until the music returns later this summer, the Rialto Theater presents The Gallery Project every Friday and Saturday from 6 to 9 p.m. It features photos and posters from past live events by Elliot, Mark A. Martinez, and Ryan Trait. Visits are free, but are reservation only. There's a link to contact the Rialto Theater on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. We love you! The best way I can describe Toe Renee Wolf's album, called A Wolf by Any Other Name, is to say it's like listening to someone share secrets in the dark. A collection of original songs with some standards, it demonstrates how, with voice and guitar, Toe Renee Wolf can make paintings on shadows. 
I've interviewed Wolf before about her busy career as an actor, dancer, and poet, but we've never before talked about her music or how she got started as a singer-songwriter. A storyteller behind the screen Dancers falling, changing the air that I breathe And the one-minute stories that sang So the guitar that I use is a guitar that I've had since I was 16 years old. And since I'm older than fire, that's a very, very long time. And my guitar's name is Orpheus Montage. It's a Garcia classical. And it is one of my oldest and dearest and most cherished of friends. When I started playing guitar when I was 13, and I didn't have a guitar on my own. All my friends were playing guitar, and we'd like, pass guitars around. And I went to an alternative school called Providence Free School in Providence, Rhode Island. And I came into school one day, there was this guitar in a case that was left for me. They said, this guitar was left for you to use. And I'm like, by who? And they said, well, you know, one of these rock guys was in watching you play and, and um, left this guitar. I don't even remember this man's name. I had his guitar for a year while I practiced, and I would practice four hours a day and still go to school and do homework. And the day that I thought, wow, maybe this is my guitar, he shows up in this car with like these three or four long-haired, hippie, rocked-out guys, and he said, you have my guitar? I went, absolutely. And I said, why did you, didn't even know me, why did you leave your guitar with me? He said, because I knew you needed one, and I knew you'd take really good care of it. Never heard from him, never saw him again. To this day, I don't know who he was. He was like a guitar angel. And then commenced the hunt for my own guitar. And my mother took me to many a music store, and I'd look at guitars, and it wasn't happening. And my mother kept saying, maybe you're being too picky. And it's like, I'll know my guitar. And we went to this little guitar shop. And I walked in, and I looked up, and I scanned the upper row of guitars all hanging, and I pointed to this guitar, and I said, that one. And the man said, a guitarist knows their guitars. And he put the guitar in my hand, and that began one of the deepest and most profound love affairs of my life, the one with my guitar, Orpheus Montage. This past year, I think time has been relevant to people in a way it never was before. Mm -hmm. We always wished we had more time at home. Now that we have it, what are we doing with it? Right off the bat, your album caught my ear with the song Jump the Timeline. Here we are, spinning the edge of a broken dream. Jump the timeline. I am a child of science fiction and quantum physics and fantasy, and I believe in string theory and multiple realities and alternate universes. So the idea 
of jumping the timeline, that we can craft the timeline, that we can call into fruition a timeline that's kinder and more gentler. And also because I'm a painter, a lot of my lyrics are, are very cinematic, and I will see images, and what I saw was like this drone shot of horses running across an open plain, and they were blue. And so I'll be the one running with the fast blue horses. I'll be praying, see me, see me dancing. I'll be the dark, muddy earth and the lotus blooming. And so the idea that lotuses bloom in what looks to be the most wretched kind of place, but here is this incredible flower that opens up and calls to us. But the dreck and dross of our life can often be the most fertile places where the deep, hard gifts are. We are not cows. We are not cows. You've given me a new metaphor to understand your work, because talking about being a painter, now I realize that, say, in a song like In Some Foreign Room, which comes later mm-hmm. in the album, Mm-hmm. I think that you're applying brush strokes to the canvas, but we, the listener, we don't know what colors you have loaded on that brush. Mm-hmm. And so to see that brush stroke come to life in your song is a way that will now, I think, impact the way I think about your music. In some foreign room. I read you on the wall Behind four-letter words Beneath the black graffiti scroll In Some Foreign Room, this is one of my oldest songs. It mixes my time in college in Philadelphia, my moving to Flagstaff, a huge love affair, and also the whole idea of Jung, that, that the metaphor for ourselves are houses. You can look at what the attic represents, what the middle floors represent, what the basement represents in the deep subconscious. So all of that gets played out as in some foreign room. There was a songwriter named Nick Drake. His touch affects many people in different mm-hmm. ways. And his short life and his short career as a songwriter is levied by the fact that he has been performed by so many people. So many people find something resonant in Nick Drake's words. Mm-hmm. And the song River Man is long a favorite of mine. But, you know, your version took it to a new place for me because I felt like you inverted it somehow. And I want you to reflect on that idea of inversion that I heard with the tune. A lot of times it's focused on the river man himself, who's a, who's a somewhat mythical and mysterious character. But I felt like your version of the song focused more on 
the people who are talking about the river man and, and shifted the focus. So tell me what you think about that. Well, it's so interesting because I don't know about the river man. I came across this song late one night noodling around on YouTube. I'm a night owl, you know, good wolf that I am. Um, <laughs> and there's a word in a, in a foreign language that talks about nostalgia for the thing that never happened. Yes. And it made me nostalgic for my teenagehood which was very rich and interesting, but it made me nostalgic for this future that had not happened yet and probably perhaps never will happen or perhaps happens in a timeline, you know, three feet adjacent and one floor up. <laughs> and to me, the river man was a mystical being, perhaps, who knows something. Perhaps the river man is someone who stands at the crossroads by the river. Mm. He's not someone who fixes and makes groovy and cool everything. But I think the river man is someone shaded in colors who understands shadows. Or maybe stay, she wasn't sure. For when she thought of summer rain, calling for her mind again. the pain and stayed for more in my painting world i often have stylized skulls and they represent the ancestors and i cling to the wisdom and the energy of the ancestors and since nick is on the other side he is an ancestor so i also wanted to do right by him and right by his music and he dealt with depression and a lot of other things that are hinted at. It makes perfect sense that the river man is someone who would understand the shadows and understand things that perhaps are not clearly seen in the daylight, but maybe things that are better seen at twilight. See the river man Gonna tell him all I can About the band on That was multi-talented Tucson artist To Renee Wolf Sharing songs and stories from her album A Wolf by Any Other Name Produced by Bob Byers Wolf is performing this weekend Friday at 7pm And Saturday at 2pm at the Invisible Theater, located at 1400 North 1st Avenue. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's interim news director is Duncan Moon. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Production assistance by Yasmin Acosta. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.